Hey there, creatives. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, Today is another interview um, from the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit series that we've been creating, bringing uh, different therapists and, um, and presenters that are part of the Expressive Therapy Summit training. Uh, This particular event is going to be in November, 2021, uh, partly online virtual, so you can join from anywhere in the world. And then partly in New Jersey at uh, the Tropicana. And um, it will be held in a space that's separate from uh, the, the regular part of the hotel. So it's going to be in its kind of its own tower. So there'll be plenty of room for social distancing, even in the conference rooms themselves, there'll be plenty of room for social distancing. And they're taking a lot of care to make sure that people that do come and attend in person um, feel safe and comfortable. Um, and some of the sessions may even be held outside on the beach, weather permitting, you never know. Um, So today's uh, interviewees, uh, interviewees, because there's a whole panel, which was really, um, really fun to do. Um, And we get to hear different perspectives from different people. And the focus is really on um, understanding the value of the expressive arts and advocacy for the expressive arts in uh, neurocognitive decline and um, as it relates to brain health and, um, and, and just providing services to those struggling with um, dementia and Alzheimer's and just an aging brain. Um, so you'll hear a conversation with uh, myself, art therapist Angel Duncan, uh, who is a strong advocate um, for this work and has really created her career around this work. Um, Dan Cohen, who um, he has has created the documentary film Alive Inside, which if you have not seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. It won a Sundance Audience Award in 2014, and it's really, really moving, and um, be prepared to cry. And we're also speaking with Juliet King, who um, is another art therapist who has made the focus of her career on uh, really linking neuroscience with the work of art therapy and helping to create a body of research so that um, we have the the science to support what we already know is happening. And we're also speaking with uh, Berna Huebner, who um, is the producer of I Remember Better When I Paint and editor of that same book, which is a film about her mom and and her mom's process. And you get to hear a little bit about that from her. And then Dr. Wendy Miller, um, who uh, she's also an art therapist and and she, oh my gosh, she shares uh, so much wonderful information and, um, and the way she formulates uh, and synthesizes 
the conversation and the interview is just beautiful. Um, so I, I really hope that you enjoy uh, this conversation and uh, you'll definitely want to check out their work, um, which is going to be a whole uh, symposia of offerings on the topic that we're discussing today. Angel is going to be pre presenting uh, a training on perspectives on identity and conscious in neurocognitive impairments, portraits of the self. Um, Dan Cohen, he is going to be uh, doing a training called Everyone's Got the Right to Music and will leave nobody behind. Uh, Juliet is um, going to be uh, facilitating a session on neuroscience-informed art therapy and highlighting research and practice. Um, they're going to be uh, doing a film screening of I Remember Better When I Paint uh, with Berna Hubner. And afterwards, there will be a panel Q&A discussion with Berna, with Dr. Wendy Miller, and with uh, Judy Holstein, um, who is a dance therapist. And uh, she'll be uh, speaking um, and asking, answering questions as well. And um, I highly recommend that you head over to the Summit website and see all the amazing um, opportunities to learn from really, really talented um, therapists and leaders in the field. And you can do that by heading over to summit.expressivemedia.org. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I'm very excited to welcome um, my guests today. Uh, there are multiple people um, here today to share about uh, the powers and the importance of the arts um, for the brain and the aging population. And um, I'm gonna introduce them one by one. So we have five guests. And I'm going to start with Dan Cohen. Um, Dan Cohen has a master's in social work, and he's the founder and CEO of Right to Music, advocates integrating best practice music systems into healthcare and promoting the power of music. He founded Music and Memory, a nonprofit organization that promotes the use of personalized music to improve the lives of the elderly and infirmed. The therapeutic outcomes of his work are portrayed in the documentary film, Alive Inside, which won the 2014 Sundance Audience Award. He has trained more than 20,000 professionals in 5,000 long-term care homes, hospitals, 
hospices and home care programs across North America, Europe, and Australia. We also have Berna Hubner, who is the co-director and associate producer of the film, I Remember Better When I Paint. She is also the editor of the book by the same title. Berna is president and founder of the Hilgos Foundation, which supports and encourages the ongoing process of artistic creation with people who have different forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's. Berna also serves on the board of directors of Arts and Minds, Advisory Council of CME Program at the Smithsonian Museums, and a director of the Center for the Study of International Communications in Paris. She is the former research director for Nelson Rockefeller when he was governor of New York and then vice president. We also have Dr. Wendy Miller, who um, has lots and lots of credentials. She's a board certified registered art therapist, a licensed clinical practicing art therapist, an LCPAT, a registered expressive arts therapist, a licensed practicing counselor, um, and a BCPC. I'm not sure which what that credential means, but very, um, very well credentialed. She's an expressive arts therapist, an artist, and an educator. She's taught for over 15 years in various universities throughout the country, including JFK University, San Francisco State University, Southwestern College, Leslie College, California Institute of Integral Studies, and the George Washington University. She's the co-founder of Create Therapy Institute, which offers clinical services in arts-based psychotherapy and trainings in the expressive arts. She's a founding member and first elected past executive co-chair of the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association, where she continues to be on their advisory council. She's also an advisory member of the Peter Alphon Prevention and Healthy Living Center at Maine General Health. And she continues the legacy of her late husband's work, pioneer of creative aging, Jean Cohen and his Washington DC Center on Aging, where she works on projects in intergenerational communication. Miller's skills take her into the worlds of fine art, writing, psychology, expressive arts therapy, and mind-body medicine. She's published on medical illness and the arts as complementary medicine, the use of Santry therapy with internationally adopted children, experiential approaches to supervision in the expressive arts therapies, and on the cultural responsibility of the arts and therapy. She continues to research the relationship among the arts, creativity, and health, particularly in her book, which draws from the writing she and her late husband, Jean Cohen, did together, entitled Sky Above Clouds, Finding Our Way Through, a, through Creativity, Aging, and Illness, which was released in March of 2016 from Oxford University Press. We also have Juliet King, um, who is also a board certified registered art therapist, a licensed practicing counselor, a licensed mental health counselor, and the associate professor of art therapy at the George Washington University, an adjunct pro associate professor in the Department of Neurology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Professor King received her master's in art therapy from Hanneman Drexel University 
and has two decades as a clinician, administrator, and educator. She developed and implemented the graduate art therapy program at Heron School of Art and Design at IUPUI Indianapolis, Indiana, and spearheaded the development of over 30 internships in Indianapolis and surrounding areas. She's also developed and continues to oversee the first art therapy and neuroscience and medicine program at the Indiana University Neuroscience Center. Professor King's research explores the systematic integration of art therapy and neuroscience with a particular focus on mobile brain body imaging, also called MOBI, to understand and measure the mechanisms of change in the therapeutic process. In 2016, she wrote and edited a textbook entitled Art Therapy, Trauma, and Neuroscience, Theoretical and Practical Perspectives, and plans for the second edition are in motion. Currently, Professor King is working on a dissertation for her PhD in translational health sciences with a focus on the cognitive neuroscience of neuroaesthetics and art therapy. And finally, we have Angel Duncan, who has organized um, these lovely, this lovely group of professionals to uh, create a specific track at the upcoming uh, Expressive Therapies Summit, um, which focuses all on um, the arts and aging. And um, it's really gonna be wonderful. And we're gonna be talking about that today. Um, Angel herself has an extensive background in counseling psychology, art therapy, and Alzheimer's disease clinical research trials. She comes from the San Francisco Bay Area working with Stanford University, the University of California, San Francisco, and the Alzheimer's Association. In the Northeast coastal region, Angel developed wellness support groups and secured large grants for homelessness and seniors living in isolation. In Florida, she was the researcher Associate and Director of Education at the Neuropsychiatric Research Center of Southwest Florida. Currently, Angel is an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa. She guest teaches and consults for diverse leading organizations and academic institutions in brain health initiatives across the country, including the UK, France, and Southeast Asia. She co-developed Arts in Mind, a young onset and early stage Alzheimer's program at the Yale University Art Gallery and resides on the Medical Advisory Board for Lorenzo's House. Angel serves as the Executive Arts Director for the Cognitive Dynamics Foundation and speaks globally on neurocognitive disease and the importance of creativity on the brain. She is widely published author and is a peer reviewer for Frontiers in Psychology and the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Angel founded and hosts the podcast N2 Creative Aging on Spotify and other platforms for aging empowerment. Thank you all so incredibly much for being here today. Thank you. This is a great to be on here and with such esteemed friends. Absolutely. Um, kind of reading everybody's bios, uh, everybody has a wealth of knowledge on this topic of um, arts and creativity and aging. And um, I'm wondering if there's um, a, a similar entry point um, for folks. Um, Wendy, how did you get involved in uh, kind of combining your work as an arts therapist with the aging population? Well, I really, um, 
I started years upon years ago through the California Arts Council. Um, I, I lived in San Francisco and in, in those days, many of us who were artists, you know, we were always searching for ways to, to uh, be of service in the community and the arts councils had artists and social institutions and artists and community grants. So I did that for a number of years. And then later when I moved to DC and, um, and I married Jean Cohen, it was like he, you know, he was a, a, a medical, he was a psychiatrist at NIH moving, you know, from medicine toward creativity. And I was an artist, you know, moving toward medicine because I was working a lot in psychoneuroimmunology with AIDS and chronic fatigue patients. And so we met, you know, kind of midlife for both of us and, and worked together and married one another. And, you know, I think as background here, and certainly Berna will talk about this, but you know, as many of you know, as a, as a physician and a geriatric psychiatrist, I mean, Jean studied the field of aging, particularly Alzheimer's disease, really from the early 1970s, you mm. know, until his untimely death in, in 2009. And so, you know, he brought me into that whole world or maybe if he were here he would say I brought him into certain parts of that world in terms mm -hmm. of creativity but the overlap was really strong and um you know I mean I could go on and on about him mm -hmm. but I, I'll save it okay <laughs> that's my entry point that's really nice and um and Berna um I know you have a, a very personal um entry point yourself would you mind sharing with listeners um what uh what's what was the um the muse and and the reason behind your work and creating the documentary and focusing on uh, creativity um with older adults Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with all of you. Um, well, here's what happened. When I was trying to connect with my mother, an artist struggling with Alzheimer's memory loss, she had stopped painting. And so one day I just asked her, mother, do you want to paint? And to my absolute amazement, she, she replied with six words that changed her life and my life. And the six words were, yes, I remember better when I paint. So these are the words that were the catalysts that enables me to be here today. And it was my mother who guided me um, with her words of wisdom. And in fact, it's through my own odyssey with my mother's experience with Alzheimer's that I was able to see how creativity changed her life and indeed may change the lives of others. So it's, it was just a series of things that happened. And um, along the way that enabled us to do this film, including uh, Olivia de Havilland, whom I had a chance meeting with um, in Paris. And she, I had just come back from a meeting with my co-director and, and I told her when I was late, I had just had this meeting and she said, well, who's going to narrate this film? And she said, cause I would like to do that. So mm -hmm. that and my mother having been associated with the Art Institute in Chicago, when her doctor said, why don't you call her old school, the Art Institute and get some students to paint with her. 
um, we had these wonderful students who painted with my mother. And when we did the film, we filmed in front of our in front of Surratt's grand shot with the help of the president of the Art Institute School, Tony Jones. And, and then being able to film at the Louvre, which wasn't even permitted, also was through the help of a friend, and also screening in front of uh, Renoir's boating party at the Phillips was also with the help of a friend. And then we had noted doctors and um, who are in the film and talk about how parts of the brain are spared. And then luckily, um, one of my very important gurus was um, Yasmin Aga Khan, whose mother Rita Hayworth also had Alzheimer's and she introduced me to many people as did um, Dr. Jean Cohen, who as I mentioned um, was a very, very important guru. I could go on, but I'll stop here. Thank you, but that's how the film, and it's still on public television as I think both of our films are, thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Um, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Dan, obviously you too have a documentary film on this topic. What, what brought you into that work in that world? Well, the film um, really came about from just wanting to, uh, when I started this as a volunteer and I just, uh, in 2006 on the radio, I heard a journalist talking about how iPods ubiquitous, you know, everybody has their music. And I thought, well, that's not really true if you're in any sort of long-term care. Um, and so I volunteered, went in, started, I asked, is it okay if I brought in, and you know, music's already your number one activity. You have a large activity staff, a local county run um, nursing home. And, but can we see if there's any added value if we keep people their own music? And mm -hmm. so they said, sure. And I came in and people lit up to that. And I thought, this is great. And, uh, but as I went along and sort of gave people back their own music, reconnected them to their own music, um, I found, uh, I thought everybody should do this and it wasn't happening. I needed to really, and people consider themselves, everybody's their own expert on music. Their life mm -hmm. experience is, is um, focused on what they like and such. And to say some, that music has additional powers or capabilities or impacts, it was just not um, registering. And so um, I was able to get a filmmaker in just for an afternoon. Um, and that was the Henry video, which is the most viewed video on anything related to Alzheimer's or dementia globally at about 50 million views. And, uh, which, and you can't make something go viral, it just was lucky. Um, some somebody on Reddit wrote, "Oh, this is us in 50 years." The kids writing, um, and uh, and then I said, "Well, to the filmmaker, well, let's go. I, I know someone else in another nursing home. They love the music, and this would be great to film in a different way. Or people maybe with, um, you know, a psychiatric diagnosis, or somebody else who's really depressed, or somebody who's got Parkinson's or whatever, or MS." And so we did that, and he said, well, "We really have the makings of a, of a documentary," and mm -hmm. so that's how you know the, sort of the the film uh, sort of evolved. Um, that's how that got going. Beautiful. It was really out of the, oh, so my point was the reason why we needed the film and, and, and the, um, um, the, the, that initial video was because people would say to me when I tell my family and friends, oh, gee, you should see what I'm coming across and how powerful music is. And they go, how nice, Dan, you, you bring in the old people music. And I go, no, 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 you don't, you don't get this. So I was really frustrated that I was not able to, 
to um, have more contagion on that sort of uh, excitement about this, that people did, everybody's from Show Me, that Missouri kind of saying, um, they had to see it themselves and, and the film, that, I mean, that's the beauty of film. Um, and, and so that, that's why we really worked to get that to happen. And, and also, Berna, like your film, um, uh, you know, Oliver Sacks and uh, Al Power and Bill Thomas, um, um, and Peter Davies, the researcher who invented sort of the underpinnings of uh, some of the um, medications we have for uh, um, forms of dementia, um, all, you know, agreed to participate um, because they saw the, the value in music and the arts. Beautiful. Thank you so much for, for sharing. I think it's a very inspirational story for other people. When, when you see something that, and, and you know, it's making a difference, but other people aren't aware or they're, you know, not really believing in that awareness that uh, there's a way to, to really show the world, uh, especially with our access to YouTube and things like that these days. So thank you. Um, Juliet, how about you? Um, how did you, you know, make your foray into making the neuroscience aspect of your work uh, kind of your your main focus? Because um, it's not typically something that's taught in art therapy programs. Not yet. <laughs> 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 but like, whoa, it's so exciting to be here. I'm just blown away by this panel and the, and the company here. And it's like, ah, you know, and, and I'm, I'm listening to your stories of how you all got into this. And what keeps resonating in my mind is, um, you know, as a, a clinician for so long, I saw how art therapy works, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it works. Okay, and then being an advocate for art therapy, um, you know, I, I know that there are so many elements of our profession um, that we need to make more substantial so that the public, the general public can understand some of the distinctions between therapeutic arts and the profession of art therapy, knowing that art is everywhere and it's a fundamental part of being alive, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's dance or music or painting, right? And so um, these ways of being, are crucial to who we are as humans. And so, you know, that's, that's really how I came into the neuroscience by seeing that we have so much capacity in our ways of working with people and to help people communicate through their creative process and what it is that they make and the importance of symbolism mm -hmm. in that and how different materials and methods evoke different types of expression. And all of this takes place within a relationship in the psychotherapeutic encounter, right? So we learn these fundamental aspects of art therapy, but back in the day when I went to grad school, we didn't get any training on the brain. We didn't get it. The dance therapist did, the dance movement therapist, they got to take kinesiology and physiology. And I was like, well, why didn't we get to do that? Right. And that kind of drove me. I didn't realize it at the time, but that interest in the brain and interested in what I can articulate now is understanding the neural mechanisms of the creative process and learning more about this symbolic communication that just holds so much rich material for us. What's actually happening on the inside, 
right? And so long ago, back in early 2000, I took a position as a neurofeedback clinician and that mm. brainwave biofeedback. And that's really where I started to learn and become trained in how the, the brain, how we have the potential to train our brain and how when we include art making in that, I worked at a fabulous place um, that allowed for me to conduct some research and really look at some artistic productions as people went through their neurofeedback. And we could see graphically that things would change, right, in the formal elements of their work. And we could correlate that with behavioral change. And it's like, ooh. And then as my career unfolded and I became really interested in program development, right, and building things. I like to build things. And when I went to Indiana to build the art therapy program, everything that I did was really kind of stood on the, the legs of science and the understanding and the knowing that we need more science to support the work that we do in terms of um, the public understanding what that is, in terms mm -hmm. of licensure advocacy, in terms of being able to collaborate and connect with our brothers and sisters all across the continuum, right? And so um, that's really where I, you know, I'm a creative arts therapist. I learn by doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I take some coursework. I work with neurologists, you know, and, and in the program development really got a chance to see across the board how impactful art therapy is from a neuroscience angle for all populations. And of mm -hmm. course, um, populate people that are aging and, and challenges that go along with aging, I think is a, a really, um, it's waiting. You know, we, you all have been working in this realm for so long, right? And, and we still have a lot more work to do in terms of showing how it is that our, um, our process and, and, and uh, techniques and approaches can really enhance the healing um, for people um, in the aging population. And so I think that that could take so many different um, uh, approaches um, mm -hmm. of what you are all doing, right? And so I'm just really happy to be a part of this and in particular looking at, you know, alive inside. What's going on when people come alive and listen to music? What's going on with memories when people paint? We experience this ourselves. So what's happening, you know, in the brain as, as time goes on and how is it that we are able to use different forms of art making to help people communicate and connect? And what's the role mm. of movement in that and imagery, right? And so I just think there's so much potential to show a beautiful intersection of arts and science and how we can really uh, promote healing with clinical health populations in that process. So amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing that and articulating it so beautifully. And um, we're fortunate to have people uh, like yourself that are passionate about the neuroscience aspects of things, really putting it all together so that we do have that evidence base behind the work that we're doing as creative arts therapists so that other folks do get the buy-in. And I think, you know, when Dan, you were sharing how, you know, people just weren't getting it. It's almost, they, they need that evidence to support um, investing in these things that it's not just, you know, fun and games that, that there's real uh, transformation that's happening for people when they engage in the arts.
And the coolest thing, if I could just add something real quick, the coolest thing is including the science does not detract from the magic. Right. Yeah. Like, and I think that's the beauty of the neuroscience, too. And there's all different ways to go about studying the neural correlates and, and the scientific method. But we can traverse this continuum of the natural, the social, the transcendent sciences in our quest to, to do that. And it doesn't reduce what it is that we do. It doesn't detract from the beauty of what we do. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Dan, <laughs> were you going to say something in response? Well, I was just I was just making a quote, if I could, Juliet. On, you know, the, the science does not, you know, reduce the magic. I mean, that's just the the essence. You know, we we neuroscientists have and have learned a lot about how the brain functions with music, let's say, uh, but there's still that essence, that core they still don't understand. You know, so the more they learn, the more they don't know, I guess. And um, no, it's um, I'm I'm enjoying you know just listening to everybody's sort of take on this and um, and having a chance to to share and and learn. Thank you. Yeah, Angel. I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, please do. I have a quote that I wanted to share too. Um, this was an amazing nurse um, in Chicago. She actually worked with the VA, and she had her. Um, she was actually with uh, Rush for a while. And uh, I met her and she was in the film, as I mentioned, and she was so important. And this is what she writes. She says, I think our health education does not begin to teach the potential for the sacred spiritual relationship that can and should exist. Much of the real comfort and healing that needs to be done is in the context of listening with the ears of our heart. And that is sort of what I think that I had to do to, to be able to listen to my mother and to listen to the doctor and to listen to Angel and to listen to Jean and to listen to everybody, I, because it really sums up our project to listen with the ears of your heart. And not being a medical person, I had to do that instead of, I wish I were more medical, but anyway, that's what I feel that we had to do is to listen to the gurus very, very carefully. Thank you, Berna. Yeah. I, want, I wanted to um, give Angel an opportunity to, obviously, um, we're all here together because of your connection to each individual on the panel. Can you share a little bit about your motivating factor for getting into um, the work of arts and aging and, and how, um, how important uh, it is for you to share uh, this work, um, uh, everybody's work here uh, with the public. Yeah, so it kind of fell in my lap. I, um, I was a teacher for children on the autism spectrum and had learning disabilities in San Antonio and Austin, Texas. And it was through that work that brought me out to Northern California to pursue art therapy and counseling psychology and marriage and family therapy. And getting my field work hours required to have some community involvement. And across the street from my campus was a Alzheimer's um, community mm -hmm. facility. So I went over there and they happened to have an art therapy program called Memories in the Making that the Alzheimer's Association was running. And Tony Morley, who was my first mentor. She is an art therapist, marriage and family therapist. And she kind of took me under her wing 
And I knew nothing about Alzheimer's. I was just there to help out and get some field work hours and learn about it. And it was through watching how these individuals were, were they were creating paintings and at the same time they're remembering. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed at how these people who were living in the moderate to late stages of the disease were able to paint the, it's like they could paint in the same style and they could go back in a time where I was able to actually, I'd say, I felt like I was reliving their life with them as they got to talk about, you know, a memory. And then um, it was just so much, it was such an eye opener. I had no idea. And then Tony offered me an internship at the association, which, and I do advocate this because I think this is important. I was denied an internship. I was told I was not doing therapy with people that had dementia because they couldn't have insight. I wasn't doing traditional therapy. And I decided I'm going to take the internship anyway. So I did. And, and that ended up being my 20 year career (laughs) that I've been doing now for 20 years. And it's important, you know, to give that knowledge. And Juliet was spot on. You don't get the knowledge of neuroscience in your education. And as a graduate student, that's the one component that I felt was really missing. So having these expertise where we can come in and now teach, you know, now I get to teach about it and I get to prepare these future therapists is remarkable. But it was through this field work, just this, you know, 30 hour field work profession in Belmont, California, and an exposure to this world that opened my eyes on a level I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. And then it brought me to research because I'm such a brain nerd. I'm so fascinated by the brain. And, and that got me into research and we did clinical trials and we would have autopsy studies and I would be holding brains and looking at it going, so you're responsible for all my thoughts and emotions and all the, <laughs> all this, all this stuff. And it was fascinating. And then being at the research center, we would have our patients getting their infusions, sitting there, you know, Mm. praying for this miracle drug, you know, praying and and despair and having the support groups. And we would talk with them. And then I would start engaging them in art. Mm -hmm. And then they got exposed to this whole new world because it, I I started realizing at, at my work at Stanford and UCSF and then out in New Jersey, and then here in Florida, the research center was the only social outlet many of these people have. Mm. So when we got to actually do the art therapy program at the museum, so, you know, Raina and I partnered, we actually co-facilitated a arts and Alzheimer's program at the Alliance for the Arts here in Fort Myers. And then we did it in Naples at the Artist Naples. And it was just amazing to see people coming back alive where husbands and wives get to be husbands and wives. And the term Mm -hmm. caregiver is no longer applicable. So yeah. I got to see it on a level. So being in the research aspect on the neurosciences where I'm testing people, I'm scoring people, I'm doing their intakes, I'm writing the dictations, you know, we're doing monoclonal antibody infusions. But then I have this holistic side mm-hmm. where I can see the two need each other mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. very great way. I think science has a lot to learn from art. Mm-hmm. You can get more information, I think, my, this is my, my opinion, is I think if an if a neuroscientist were to sit down with a someone living with a dementia and do painting together, they're going to learn a lot about that person. They had no idea that they're not going to get on an MRI scan, sure, or their mini mental score. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's something happening deeper that science can't explain, but art can. 
So that's what got me involved is just starting from this whole world, little Texas world and autism to my fieldwork hours to Tony Morley and the Alzheimer's Association who launched my career. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I hope that your, um, that your story inspires other uh, therapists out there that when they're kind of told, no, that that's not, that's not therapy that they push forward because um, clearly uh, there is something transformational that occurs. Um, if you help somebody access themselves again um, in, in a way where they can be in the present moment, um, that is therapeutic. That is therapy, right? Like what it, at the core are we doing as therapists? Uh, we are helping people connect to that relationship with the self, right? And, and be aligned in a wholehearted way with the self. And I mean, that's what's happening when you're getting them to that place. Absolutely. And you're working with families. I mean, it's not just the, I mean, Alzheimer's doesn't just affect the person and affects the entire family. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah it's, it's a dream to be able to, and it's a privilege to be able to work with these individuals. Thanks, Dan. You were pointing yeah. your hand. You want to say something? So we have this body of knowledge that's growing. We have this passion. So just like before reason I made the movie, what, how do we get that out there? And we're kind of limited, you know, Angel, when you reference, oh, the mini mental, you know, you know, tests that sort of like give people an easy way to get a profile on someone versus all right, sitting down with each person takes time, knowledge, and, um, and repeated. And, and just like therapy, is therapy is, well, let's say once a week, but the person goes home and um, they may be able to take what they've learned and, and generalize that and apply it but uh, many people may not be able to do that so easily or maybe not be able to do that without the proper support system knowledge and time and so to me we have a gap between what we know and how to systemically adopt it you know we have x number what seven thousand music therapists in the country board certified um, you know whatever number of art therapists in the country and still that's a whatever number of psychotherapists i don't know what the number is but but all of those together are still, um, how do we bridge that? How do we get that mass um, communication, adoption, uh, the outcome, generate the outcomes that we know we can do, we've, but we've got a block, we've got a huge block. And so in the, in the interim, until we figure out how to bridge that gap, we've been working to build our engine, you know, build speed, mm -hmm. you know, the car is going faster, more people are on board. Um, but, you know, what's that critical mass? What's that tipping point? When will uh, art as a, um, in, in its many aspects, will go beyond its current incarnation in schools when art is not um, zapped because of budget cuts um, and uh, when music is cut, um, you know, what do we do to um, have it go beyond that initial sort of school exposure to a lifetime understanding and application at home with your family members and professionally? Mm. I no, think that's an excellent question. Go ahead, Wendy. I, I was thinking, listening to you, Dan, that, you know, when you first spoke, you said, I was frustrated because I couldn't have more contagion on this. And I realized listening to all of us, and certainly me representing not only myself, but also my late husband, 
we, sh we all share something about this, this incredible frustration, you know, Berna, the way you described it and Juliet about neuroscience and Angel, you know, they didn't think that Alzheimer patients could do therapy, you know, and it just makes me think a lot about, you know, again, here, when I think about Gene, I mean, he, he had to speak to Congress in the 70s to get them to reimburse mental health services beyond that like $250 limit or something for the same frustration, you know, that, oh, older people, they can't change. So, you know, and, and that just went on and on, you know, he had to encourage AARP to not just focus on physical health, but mental health, or he was a key person to initiate and implement, um, what was her name, Margaret Heckler. She, she was the Secretary of Health and Human Services during the Reagan administration to focus on Alzheimer's. So he did all this work basically to change the field of aging as a landscape from having people look at it as a field of decline to a field of creative potential. And that's mm -hmm. really what we're talking about. And when I think about the, the various, each of our stories, our, our entry points are, are these frustrations, you know, and, and I, it comes back to me that that line that Jean is well known for, you know, um, something about, you know, ask what we can do because of age, not in spite of it. Or his favorite mm -hmm. was with aging art is like chocolate to the brain. You know, that whole concept of what we're talking about, like something that, that the brain savors. And when it savors that, that's what potential is, you know, and that, and that it's never too late for us to do that. Or, or as he said, the ultimate manifestation of potential is creativity. And here we are, I'm, I'm excited like you are, Julia, and Angel, you're brilliant at this, like putting us together because so many of us have, felt like we're, we're sort of pushing on our field, whatever it might be, and we're pushing out to the edge, but there we are all by ourselves, trying to convince people, you know, and, and I think about somebody like Jean who, you know, spent all of this time, he was a psychiatrist, but he, he because of the National Endowment for the Arts and AARP funding him to do the big creativity and aging research. I mean, the, the thing that really put evidence-based research on the map in terms of, of creativity. But he always thought of it as community consultation, you know, that that's what he'd been doing for a really long time. And, and he did it all the way up until the last months of his life when he ended up being the expert witness in the, in the Brooke Astor case, advocating for the rights, you know, of the aging person or really what I think we're all here to represent, which is the dignity of both family and community responsibility, and also the public's accountability for this. I mean, we're frustrated for a reason. The perceptions out there, you know, are, are really skewed, and we are all in our own way activists in the, in the rights of, of human dignity, you know, searching for ways to, to cure this cultural context really and in particular in which the in the way that we experience dementia you know it has this cultural context of no they can't do this no they can't do that you know and anyway I'm just thinking about all of that oh, it would you really synthesized um every person's um expression so well. Thank you so much for that. I think, Berna, you wanted to say something in response. Well, I was just going to continue on this community um, idea 
that Gene was so brilliant at, and, and we were able to follow a little bit in his footsteps. And the way Dan um, had all the, with the social media, people were able to access the music um, in a way that they had never experienced before. And I think that social media is part of our answer right now to, to enable people to know how important the arts and the music are um, in helping people with memory impairment. We have a a social media handle too that we, with not that many followers, but 10,000 um, talking every week about different issues that have to do about uh, helping caregivers. And, and, and um, it, it's been a really big tool that we've continued for a long time now. And then, you know, being on public television and getting the word out and screening as many places as we can, uh, that's our community responsibility. And Gene set the path for us to follow. And others did too, but he was, he was our keynoter. And um, it's really important for us to always recognize him and then recognize the people now who have been working so hard, like George Vradenberg with his U.S. Against Alzheimer's and all that he's done, and so many people in so many different worlds now all coming together and working um, with the creative arts. And it is our responsibility to do whatever we can to help, because in my mother's nursing home, um, they always said that my mother's lights are out, so there was no need for her to paint. There was no need for us to have the art students working with her. So the wonderful doctor at Rush, Dr. Larry Lazarus, was the one who helped us get through all that. And we have to keep working mm -hmm. as hard as we can in Jean's footsteps and with the people who have opened doors for us. Berna, I, I think that what you're saying still holds true today as a therapist. I, I mean, I'm in Florida and, and Angel will tell you um, here in our community, um, you know, neurocognitive um, decline is extremely prevalent because of the population, the age of the, the dominant population is retirement and older adults. And so sometimes I get called to go out and do um, therapy in facilities. And it is, I still have to advocate and um, explain to the staff there you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing, even though they might tell me things like, oh, they're not going to get it. You're, there's no point. You're, you know, there's no benefit to what you're doing. Um, but I believe there's benefit. And I, I believe the clients that I work with also experience that benefit. And, and we have to be able to advocate for that. So thank you for pointing that out that, you know, we have to be continually advocating for that um, to make those changes. Yeah, I want to share one more thing that I just was thinking about in terms of what you're what we're talking about. Two years ago, we did a um, I don't know what you call it. It was the it was ten years after Gene passed away, and GW did a, a presentation for him. And at that presentation, um, or whatever you call it, you were there, Berna. I don't know what you call it, but anyway. I was sort of voicing, similar to what we're talking about, I was sort of voicing my frustration that, you know, he did all of this and, and you know, why is it taking so long and why aren't people getting it and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I had some slides of like the British research and the Canadian research about, 
you know, doctors giving prescriptions to go to museums or, or, you know, studying the effects that it's having on loneliness. And I made some comment in whatever I said about how, you know, Jean would be so happy about this, but so frustrated, you know, that it's taken so long. And this man came up to me, his name I can't remember, but he was a researcher at GW. And he said to me, actually, it usually takes about 20 years for research that has happened in the academic field to really make it down to like, you know, the effects. He said, so in fact, you're, you're on 10 years, you know, it was 10 and a half or whatever. He said, so you're really doing pretty well. And it, it really changed something for me. I mean, of course, I had a personal, you know, personal stake in this, you know, this is my husband's legacy, but it's also, it, it affected me. And I realized, okay, we're in this for the long haul. It takes a long time. You know, I, I, I always have this image of him kind of, you know, like pushing the, the boulder up the hill. You know what I mean? It's like the myth of Sisyphus, you know? But the truth is when this guy said it usually takes twice as long, I was like, oh, okay. So maybe we're in the process and we can't see it as well as mm -hmm. maybe, maybe our people after us will be able to see it or. Well, I just wanted to add one other thing to that because Wendy and Angel and I have been working with individuals who have individual situations with people with their loved ones or whatever. And then we can connect them to others. And I'm sure all of you are, you, you, you do that all the time, but we, we, we feel very happy that we can at least connect to our friends who we can maybe help in some very small way. And all of you are probably doing it in a much bigger way, but, but helping as many people as we can and seeing the individual needs and reaching out is, is our responsibility, I think. Yeah. So in terms of like thinking about um, therapists that are out there in the communities and they are starting to do this work, bringing in uh, the creative modalities into um, older generations of people, what do you think are key ways or key, some key things that they could be doing to add to one, the body of research and the body of knowledge to continue to support these endeavors, but also to continue to push um, advocacy efforts? Dan is doing some great work. I mean, his whole work is in advocacy. I don't know, Dan, if you, I don't want to volunteer you. Sure. I just know that you have a no problem I, i've come to the conclusion so my sort of um contribution has been that how do we get all this applied on a large scale that's all i'm not an expert on anything except i come from the tech field where i'd roll out hardware and software computers and all that stuff so you know what does it take to roll it out in a, in a fortune 500 company what will it take to roll out in in in, in nursing homes um and um the, um, I, I've come to the conclusion that it needs to be required. That yes, you have many places, we know those where people walk the walk, they have the heart and they have the energy and they devote the resources. But with um, 45,000 long-term care uh, entities in the country, there's really no societal commitment to give people what they need in terms of creative arts. There's, there's no, no um, you know, activities directors have very little to work with the pandemic 
pulled the rule, well, you know, rug out from under them. Um, but it has to be, uh, we have to fund it. We have to, we have to make it possible. This year, when they said, okay, we're going to do virtual video calls. Well, that means staff had to not do their other work with residents and schedule people to see their relatives. So there was no additional funding to let's bring in students, let's do stuff. So, um, so it needs to be policy, it needs to be regulated, there needs to be transparency, um, it needs to be part and parcel of making places home for these 2.5 million people who live in long-term care today. Um, for people at home, I think we have a greater ability to communicate. There's a faster uptake with families if we get them excited and give them the tools um, and have them plug with, you know, just in the UK, as when you mentioned, uh, where they have social prescription or they're planning it and let's get people out there. Let's get people involved. What are the, what's going on and let's have people attend, participate and live um, more. Um, so, you know, that's something we can do here. So what does it take? And, and I'm, you know, I love building a collaboration around, okay, how do we make this happen in the US? Globally, the United Nations, this is the decade for healthy aging. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any arts or music mentioned in this massive um, um, sort of uh, body of information they have on their priorities? No, no. How did that happen? Right, so so there's and so I feel 190 countries all agreed. Yes, our elders in terms of reduce, you know, increasing lifespans, big success, and reducing different diseases and such, uh, but nothing about creative arts. Nothing. Okay, <laughs> so um, yeah, so we're up against quite and and aging. So and the young people coming up into healthcare. Well, to what degree are they bringing their inherited ageism? lack of empathy for people different from themselves, lack of empathy and understanding people with cognitive decline. Um, you know, so what do we need to do there? Um, so, and build that, you know, we got to get them young, that, that 20 year time frame. Um, well, part of that is we've got to have people coming up through the system that, that help move it along. Um, and so what everybody's doing in terms of their teaching and, and that's all part of that plan. Uh, but how many, you know, I look at the numbers, how many of you are there out there? How wide, how many people are going through med school this year and how many of them hear anything about creative arts? Um, you know, how many, uh, you know, rehab therapists, you know, how many um, arts therapists, I mean, not arts therapists, the, the different, you know, medical uh, folks, social workers, um, how, you know, how much are they integrating that into their practice? You know, and, and so what are the numbers and what's the baseline and what do we want to do every year and how are we going to get there? <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Juliet, do you have anything uh, that you might be willing to share on what therapists who are working with this population could be doing to contribute to the research aspects, to create the evidence, to bring to Congress, to advocate for policy change um, the way Dan is um, suggesting? Yeah, so I and I did want to piggyback off of what Wendy said a little bit ago about um, how do we bring the data to the people, right? And and that's a reason why I chose the PhD program that I'm in in translational health sciences, because it's all about how do you bring the data to clinical health populations, right? How do we take this really rich science, what we know about the brain, what we know about the body, which means something for people in the labs, which means something for people in academia, but how do we bring that to clinical health populations? How do we bring that to our therapists that are doing the work, frontlines duty, 
right? And so, and I often get questions from people about, well, that's great that you get to do this neuroscience work because you're an academic and you're a professor and that has been the choice that I've made in my life thus far. And it's really difficult to connect with the people that are doing the actual work. And it's really difficult, or it can be, to provide or support that collaboration that Dan's talking about. And so when you first ask the question, I go to translation and I go to collaboration. I wouldn't have been able to do anything in Indiana if it wasn't for the support of the chair of neurology and the comrades in the medical school who saw an interest and a value to art, not just the making, right, but the process and the engagement. So at the IU School of Medicine, you have a real robust team of people that are interested and invested in how to think and look and do outside of the box, right? So as an academic or a person that's positioned in an institution, for example, here at GW, what I try to share with my students is the value of collaboration and alumni, really, the value of collaboration and the value of what we might call participatory action research. How do we engage the people that are doing the front lines work, the face-to-face that are seeing day in and day out the value of these types of interventions? How do we engage and support more a collaborative team effort in order to expedite the research that needs to happen? And I think that that can be done without grandiose NIH funding. I mean, ultimately that's a goal, right? We need funding as Dan was saying, we got, you gotta have support there, right? And uh, like most of us, the field of academia and being a clinician, you don't have a ton of extra time whether you're a researcher mm-hmm. or, or you're providing direct care, you know that we are taxed. We work real hard, all of us, right? And in efforts to, to support others. So how is it that we can help one another um, in terms of creating protocol, creating ideas, uh, brainstorming? I think what Angel's doing here with this podcast and with the panel for the Expressive Therapies Conference this fall is exactly what we need to be doing. It's a beautiful example of translation and interdisciplinary collaboration. Now we all Mm -hmm. have this hub of creativity and belief, right? Uh, But ultimately we come to the table with a different set of expertise. And I think despite the um, silos that have been in our institutions historically, I think that when we look hard enough and continue to reach out, we find many, many people who are interested and know the necessity of alternative, complementary, supportive ways of knowing, which is what the arts are and how they contribute and really partner with our science friends, right? And so I think that the capacities are there. We just need to um, plug away and make those connections and doing something like this is a beautiful beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. And to pull upon what Berna was saying about the role of social media 
the role of outreach. When you say we don't have many followers, only 10,000, it's like, what? I think I have like two. But you know, it's like, that's a goal, but that's a necessity, right? And it's like, the, there are probably um, more people than we know who are interested in doing this kind of work, as, as shown by the amount of followers you have, as shown by the success of the documentaries that you put out there, right? So. You know, it's interesting what you're saying, Julia. I just want to jump in for just a second. You know, what, what I think, and this sounds very philosophical, but it feels to me like it feels important that, that somehow people are afraid of the arts in the same way as they're afraid of the sciences. There's a reason why we didn't have any neuroscience or or, you know, for me, my entry was through psychoneuroimmunology because I was working with medically ill patients. And I would, you know, send things to journals and they'd say, well, this isn't science, this isn't art therapy. You know what I mean? It fell in the cracks. So that's what we're talking about, all of these edge concepts. And one of the things that seems really important and, and is difficult with the arts is that creativity is not solely the conventional sense of making art. We're talking about creativity in, in terms of what we make of our circumstances and how we respond to the circumstances that we're in. Creativity is the catalyst. It's the catalyst for human resilience. That's the real story here. You know, mm. so that, you know, creativity is built into the human species and, and it, it's a human ability. And it's not just about surviving and it's not just about making, it's about growing meaning in the face of adversity. It's about encouraging the development of evolving strengths. And it, and it, it does so many things. It optimizes our problem solving and our interpersonal and community connections and our legacy, legacy, legacy building and our art mastery of different arts. And, and somehow people always think it's just, or this is what I get all the time. Well, you, you understand that because you're an artist. So it, it's also activating all of the, oh, I'm not one of those. I'm not really an artist. So mm. this is something different. And you have, you're a sculptor, you're a writer, you know, but it's not just, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the dynamic role that, that creativity has in terms of activating potential and in terms of you know, our relationships, if there's no creativity, there's no new starts, there's no new directions, there's no mid-course corrections, you know, or, or how we respond to adversity, you know, I mean, you would know I would talk about this, I'm a therapist, you know, and there are all kinds of people who get stuck in a problem because they don't really understand that problems also become a catalyst for potential. And so I guess I'm just thinking about, we have this I mean, I love the word translation because that sometimes mm -hmm. I say to people, I don't know if I'm really a therapist anymore. I just translate this language into this language. And somehow in doing that, we have something different. And maybe that's what happened with the films. You know, you translated some inner language into something else. And I don't really have a finale here, except to say that I've just been thinking a lot about and, and it's been part of my legacy in terms of Jean's work that, that, you know, Berna, you've heard me do this, like I'll be somewhere and somebody will say what his research meant. And I'm like, no, wait a minute, that's not what he said. Or, or I've been places where they go, he said that music is the strongest, or he said that such and such is the strongest. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, where did you get that? 
And I realize that what it comes down to is that there's not a, an expansive enough understanding of what we mean by creativity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what you said is uh, very beautifully stated and gives a lot of food for thought about how we can translate for others what creativity means. I always tell people I'm creative in every aspect of what I do. It's not because I make art that I'm creative. I'm creative in everything, you know, it from how I style my home to how I cook in the kitchen to how I walk or move my body. Like creativity is happening at every moment of every day. And, um, and to your point, how we interact with one another and problem solve, it's just, it is, it is part of being human. It is like the essential part of being human. Um, yeah. Well, I know we could go on and have really phenomenal discussion on these topics. Um, all of you uh, have so much knowledge and passion for this work, um, but I think we should talk a little bit and before we wrap up about how listeners can find out more about what you're gonna be sharing or presenting upon. Um, at the upcoming um, Expressive Therapy Summit in November. Um, I think some of your presentation might be virtual online and some will be in person in um, New York, or excuse me, uh, New Jersey. It's in Atlantic City this year. Um, yeah, so Angel, can you maybe start us off by kind of sharing uh, what, uh, people that attend the conference, if they decide to do this um, symposium track, uh, what they have, uh, what, what they'll be learning about. Yeah, so actually we're all virtual, unfortunately. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, including myself, um, we've got 11 presenters that are going to be presenting and um, so this kickoff, the start off that I'm really excited is the film screening of I Remember Better When I Paint. Wonderful. So um, Berna and Wendy and Judy Holston, who's a drama therapist also in the featured in the film, will be on the panel Q&A. So it's a beautiful film. And um, I think listeners um, are, I encourage you to, to go to the screening. It, it will be done virtually so you can see it from anywhere. And then you can ask all the questions on Q&A to Berna, Wendy, and Judy. And then followed, we'll have a symposium um, speaker lecture series with Juliet and Dan Cohen and myself. And then we have a neurologist, Dr. Daniel Potts. And we'll be talking about each of our elements of our work in um, the neurosciences and healthy aging and brain aging from Alzheimer's disease to just, you know, how it benefits mental illness and general populations of, of the elderly. And then we have two workshops. Um, one is on the program that I co-developed with the Yale University Art Gallery. So we'll have a workshop. Um, and listeners, if you want to tune into this, if you're interested in museum, it's actually going to be a hands-on guiding process of what a mock session looks like. Oh, fine. This is for young onset and early stage Alzheimer's disease. 
but it also includes children and adolescents because we now do we're now doing um, programs for youth who have a parent that is living with young onset. They're vastly, vastly underserved. So we're going to talk about how we can tap into that population and our younger and how to work with them with the arts. So we've combined art museum education and art therapy in a very unique way that also brings in the neurology aspect because students and residents are also a part of this training. Pre-med and med majors attend this program too. So it's really cool. And then um, Dan will be speaking on, I, you know, I'm not sure if you just want to talk, but his uh, wonderful work and advocacy on um, music and memory and, and policymaking and what we need to do and Juliet's beautiful work and the neurosciences and the effects of that impact on that brain health that she talked about earlier. And then Dr. Potts will be talking about how it affects um, the brain, the, how the arts are essential for creativity and brain health, why we need it, why mm -hmm. we need to be teaching this to neurology students. So he'll touch on the need for education. And then we have a beautiful workshop on photography and oh. kind of that, it's a Jungian concept. It's called Photavia. They're based out of Wisconsin International. And this is working with um, collective like Jungian images. So you have like an archetype of, a, of an image that we all resonate with mm -hmm. and how it sparks memories and mm -hmm. how you can pull that into an art therapy piece to create your own memory. And then, um, I was introduced to Roger Anderson through Wendy Miller, who um, does TED Talks. He's been all over the place, and he's going to be complementing that workshop with photography and brain teasers. How fun. Oh, yeah. So I think it's going to be a wonderful um, symposium and track between the film and the lecture series and the workshops. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so if, if you wanna sign up for that, all you need to do is go to um, the Expressive Therapy Summit website, which is um, expressivemedia.org and you'll be able to find that there. Uh, it'll, it'll take you there. And I'll put all of that information in the show notes. But before we wrap up, I would love for each of you to share where listeners can find more about you and your work um, and I'll start with you, Wendy. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, um, I have a website. I know everybody always says that, but I didn't make a website for what I think is the normal reason. I think of my website as a closet, meaning that it, it has collected everything that I did around the book. So it's called www.sky-above dash clouds.com and it started as an author page uh, or, or site for my book but it has now over the last five years collected all of the talks all of the reviews all of the podcasts just all of the things that I have done and and then eventually I also just I guess because I paid no attention to websites I lost my actual art and art therapy site because of how that all happened. So now it actually also links to drwendymiller.com. So that's really, um, I'm not, the reason I said I, I'm hesitant to describe it as a website because most people use these to give you information how to work with them or you know that kind of stuff. And mine is a closet. So it's got everything in there. 
Well, in, in the event that they want to learn more about your book or perhaps purchase your book, it's a perfect place for them to go. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. How about you, Dan? Where can people find more information about the amazing work that you're doing? I love the closet um, concept. <laughs> um, uh, my website is Right to Music. So it's, excuse me, R I G H T T O music.com. Uh, no spaces, just one word. Uh, Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And Juliet, where can people find more information about you and your work? Yeah. So I did have a website <laughs> and then I let it go. And, and let me just, <laughs> it was walkingthecorpuscolosum.com. So you can imagine that wasn't the most catchy. I know, I know it's ridiculous. So anyway, and then it was and amazing. Oh, uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. And then it was tertiaryprocess.com, which uh, that's my handle, tertiary process. It's an old term, Silvano Arietti, a psychoanalytic uh, art guy, you know, who wrote about the psychoanalysis of creativity. Anyway, but eh, you're not going to find much if you look that up. I think it's best right now to find me through uh, GW's website. So if you Google my name, Juliet King, J-U-L-I-E-T-K-I-N-G, and then art therapy at GW, that'll pop up. Um, I am in the process of making a new website and it will be called arttherapyresearch.com. So that's a catchy, right? And I will kind of connect that to tertiary process and corpus callosum stuff eventually. But that's in process. It's going to take me a little, it's going to take me um, a little bit longer to establish that. But for now, you can also email me at okay. kingjewel at gwu.edu or kingjewel at iu.edu. So my last name and half of my first. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Erna, how about you? Okay, well, our sites are www.iremembermetherwhenipaint.com and www.hilgos.org. And Hilgos was my mother's painting name. So those are the two places. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. And Angel, how about you? So... I went kind of the cheap route on Wix <laughs> for my website. So it's a, uh, it's, it's just Duncan Angel, D-U-N-C-A-N-A-N-G-E-L dot Wix, W-I-X site dot com. So Duncan Angel dot Wix site dot com. You can also reach my email at University of Tampa. So it's a Duncan at U-T, T is in Tampa dot E-D-U. Wonderful. Well, I am incredibly grateful for all of you making the time to speak uh, today on your work and uh, the, the difference that you're making in the world and the community for all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much again for listening to this episode. I hope that you're enjoying the series and definitely check out um, all that the summit has to offer. There definitely is something for everyone there. Um, and you can check out their entire um, 
listing of trainings. There's just hours upon hours of continuing education opportunities being offered this year, virtual and in person. So if you can't make it or you're not comfortable yet to travel, that's okay. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities for virtual learning for you from your home um, via Zoom. And they've done a fabulous job coordinating that over the past two summits, um, the one last November um, and then the one in the spring. Um, earlier this year. And so you can learn more about that by heading over to summit.expressivemedia.org. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week um, in the next episode. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.